Mark chapter 15. As we mentioned last Sunday, you can divide Jesus' time on the cross into two three-hour sections. The first section began at 9 a.m. when Jesus was officially crucified, nailed to the cross, and it goes all the way to noon, the first three hours. The second comes from noon to 3 p.m. when Jesus breathes his last and gives up the ghost. As we mentioned last Sunday, during the first three-hour section, Mark details, he documents for us four groups of people. Four groups of people around the cross, four group of people that interact with Jesus. And interestingly enough, these four groups of people represent or at least illustrate all of humanity that comes in contact with the crucified Jesus. First, you had the pagans, the Roman pagans who were oblivious to the truth. They didn't care about spiritual things. They're there gambling for his possessions, the few possessions that were there. This was a day like normal. It was their job. To them, they didn't care who the man on the cross was. They didn't care what he was doing. They didn't care that his name was Jesus, that the sign above him said King of the Jews. They were oblivious. No interest in spiritual things. The second group we see were the religious who made a mockery of the truth. They knew who Jesus was, but they rejected him because he was a threat to their religious system. And as Jesus is hanging on the cross, they had the, the gall to do what? To mock him, to make fun of him. Now the third group were the masses. Jesus was crucified. There, the Mount of Olives, a common roadway from the pilgrims coming from the suburbs of Bethany and Bethpage, making their way even as far out as Jericho, coming to Jerusalem. They would pass right by the crucified Christ, who wasn't lofted up, as we often think, on some cross high above the passerbys. Rather, Jesus was only a few feet off the ground, looking each person as they went by him in the eye, each person seeing his agony, each person seeing his experience, but the masses, seeing their religious leaders mocking the crucified Christ, they remained ignorant to the truth. They didn't look at it for themselves. They went along with the parade. And then the final group were two transgressors. Two other men nailed on two other crosses, each to Jesus' right and the other to his left, and they reviled the truth. Until one of the two observes. He observes that Jesus forgave all of these people. He observes Jesus's love, the love he demonstrated to his accusers. One of these two rebels on these two other crosses ends up making a decision to follow Jesus. His only activity, the only activity of salvation was his heart and his faith. And in this other rebel, we see a picture of many of us who were also rebels, defined as transgressors, lost in our sins. And yet we see Jesus, his love and his forgiveness, and we petition him as well, remember me in your kingdom. Now, in our study last Sunday, we also mentioned that during these first three hours, Jesus would end up making three statements from the cross. By the end of Jesus' experience, there'll be a total of seven statements. 
The first statement we find in Luke 23, verse 34. Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. No doubt, bringing attention to his heart. The second statement we find in Luke chapter 23, verse 43. Jesus' response, assuredly, I say to you, to this transgressor, to this rebel, today you will be with me in paradise. And then the third statement, a statement that's kind of off the wall, but I love it because it gives me a glimpse into Jesus' mindset. Jesus, according to John 19, as he's standing there, nailed to the cross, pushing up on the nail, he looks to his mother, Mary, as a, is at the cross, and next to her, John, one of the disciples. And he turns to Mary, his mom, and he says, woman, behold your son, referring to John. And then he turns to John, and he says, John, behold your mother. It's interesting to me, as Jesus is dying for the sins of the world, he takes a moment, doesn't he, to take care of his mother. Now, Let's examine the second three hours. Verse 33, Mark 15. Now when the sixth hour had come, noon, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, that being 3 p.m. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, now, in the end, there'll be three considerations we're gonna have towards this three-hour section. The first, though, is the physical experience of Jesus during the three hours. Last Sunday, we documented the experience, the full detailing of a Roman crucifixion at this juncture in the experience itself for hours. Jesus is enduring unrelenting pain caused by the nails driven through his wrists and the nails driven through the metatorsal bone of his feet. Not to mention the searing agony as tissue is torn from his lacerated back as he moves up and down the wooden timber trying to find relief from the cycles of wrenching, twisting, joint rendering cramps that would come in waves. All the while, Jesus is experiencing on the cross during these three hours intermittent asphyxiation because of his inability to inhale and to exhale. Over the next few hours, during the experience here, Jesus' heart will struggle. It'll work overtime to pump throughout his body thick, sluggish, oxygen-deprived blood. As this takes place, a deep crushing begins to develop within his chest, a pain, starting deep. As his heart is working overtime to pump this oxygen-deprived blood because he can't get enough air, his blood turning thick and sluggish, the pedicardium around the heart begins to fill with a serum, a liquid, it starts to compress the heart. As Jesus is approaching the ninth hour, his tortured lungs are making a frantic effort to grasp in small gulps of air. At this juncture, Jesus can feel the slow chill of death creeping through his body. The experience 
the physical experience on the cross for Jesus, as mentioned, is excruciating. There was not even a word for it. When it's all said and done, Jesus will die because this pedicardium, as it fills with liquid, it compresses the heart. The heart literally ruptures. You either died from asphyxiation in the sense that you could no longer breathe or your heart ruptured because it could no longer take the strain. We know later on that Jesus will have died because his heart ruptured because when the soldiers come by to see if he's actually dead, they jam up a spear into his side and out comes a mixture of blood and water knowing that this was the case. So our first consideration, the physical experience of Jesus during these three hours. Our second consideration is the experience of humanity during these three hours. It's often not discussed. We're so focused on Jesus, his experience on the cross, that we lose sight of what's happening around the cross. Both Matthew, Luke, and Mark document for us a unique supernatural event that occurs during these three hours. Mark tells us that when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. It's interesting that Luke removes all doubt concerning this supernatural event by saying that there was darkness over the whole earth. This was not a localized event. This was not an event that just occurred in Jerusalem, there in Judea. A global event took place whereby there was darkness covering the earth for three hours. Now, needless to say, when the time period here is noon to 3 p.m., this is abnormal. This is different, and thus there's three theories concerning this darkness. First, the darkness, by some, was only meant to be a literary invention. A common view of modern scholarship claims that the account of the synoptic gospels, that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they include the darkness really to be nothing more than a literary creation, a technique, in order to heighten the importance of what they saw as a very deep, theologically significant event. One skeptic reasons and even points to other examples in literature where the image of darkness over the land would have been understood by ancient readers as a cosmic sign, a typical element in the description of the death of kings and other major figures. So one theory is that there was not a literal darkness, but this is just a literary invention to let the reader know that something big is happening, something of theological significance. Now, the problem with that theory is that there are zero, zip, zilch, not a no, literary indicators that any of the three gospel authors were utilizing such a literary technique in describing the darkness when everything else they recorded was meant to be viewed as literal history. Let me give you an example of the silliness of this first theory. If I were to tell you Zach and Jessica Adams own a black female dog named Kaya, everything about that, that statement is meant to be taken literally. Zach, Jessica Adams, literal people, we own a black female dog named Kaya. All that's true. It, this theory would be akin to taking that sentence and saying, well, okay, everything's literal, but the word black 
isn't actually describing Kaya's skin color. It's describing the nature of her soul. That the dog that Zach and Jessica Adams own is like a demonic dog, which you would know to be horribly inappropriate because my dog is the sweetest angel in the world. But secondly, there's no indicator. I mean, every part of the sentence itself is meant to be taken literally. And so saying, oh, well, the darkness is a literary invention, there's no evidence of that. I mean, you're just pulling things out of thin air because you don't want to accept the reality of what's being communicated. Now, the second theory is that the darkness here, this three hours of darkness while Jesus is on the cross was a natural phenomenon. Now, there's some crazy theories out there, such as like a volcanic eruption and other things, like this was a plume of, 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 of dust in the atmosphere. There's several off-the-wall, bizarro kind of theories. But the most common natural explanation is that what occurred in these three hours was a solar eclipse. And for those of you who don't know, an eclipse occurs when the moon rests directly between the sun and the earth and blocks out its light. But there's two problems with the explanation of a solar eclipse. First, a solar eclipse is too brief of an occurrence to account for three hours of total darkness. As a matter of fact, the maximum duration of a total eclipse is seven minutes and 31.1 seconds. That's pretty exact, which is not three hours. So we've never had a solar eclipse last for three hours. The max is seven and a half minutes. Secondly, the second problem is that the crucifixion, <laughs> well, it, occur, it occurred during the lunar feast of Passover. See, when Passover occurred was really specific according to the law. They didn't have it just whenever they wanted to. They timed it according to the movements of the moon. It was a lunar feast, meaning that there was during Passover, a what? A full moon, which means that the moon would have been positioned on the far side of the earth, as far away from the sun as you can possibly get, making a solar eclipse entirely impossible. There's no way for an eclipse to happen if the moon is on the other side of the earth away from the sun. And so all of the natural explanations to try to reason and account for these three hours of darkness also fall very flat to logic, reason, even science, which leads us to a third theory, that the darkness was a literal, historical act of God. The Old Testament prophet Amos actually predicted the darkness described by Mark. Amos chapter 8, verse 9 says that on that day, says the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feasting, it's the feast of Passover, into mourning and all of your songs into lamentations. Also, aside from the accounts provided in the Synoptic Gospels, the historical accounts documented by Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we also have countless contemporaries that documented a prolonged darkness covering the earth at the same time as Jesus' crucifixion. Tertullian, 
who lived at the beginning of the third century, wrote about a three-hour period of darkness at the crucifixion in his book, Apologeticus, even suggesting that the evidence of this three hours could be found in the logs, the Roman archives. He says, at the moment of Christ's death, the light departed from the sun. The land was dark at noonday, which wonder, Tertullian says, is related in your own annals, which means there was documentation of such, and is preserved in your archives to this day, a known fact of history. Thallus, a non-Christian Roman historian, writing in 52 AD, he actually set out to deny the supernatural elements that accompanied the crucifixion of Jesus, and yet, ironically, his writings affirm two key realities. First, according to Thallus, Jesus' death was known and discussed in Rome as early as the middle of the first century. Secondly, Thallus thought it necessary to explain the three hours of global darkness as something that occurred purely as a natural phenomenon. He was the one that perpetrated the idea of an eclipse. But what does that actually affirm? That there was indeed three hours of global darkness. Julius Africanus, a Christian historian who composed a five-volume history of the world in uh, uh, 221 AD, wrote extensively of Christ's crucifixion, wrote extensively of the darkness that covered the earth prior to his death, inciting Thallius, his third book of histories. Julius Africanus stated that during the time of Tiberius Caesar, an eclipse of the sun occurred during the full moon, which was abnormal, which would never happen. Africanus continued by saying, on the whole world, there pressed a most fearful darkness and the rocks were rent by an earthquake, also mentioned in the gospel accounts, and many places in Judea and other districts were thrown down. Now, Julius Africanus was not like a, an obscure, unknown historian. His scholarship so impressed the Roman emperor, Alexander Severius, that he was entrusted with the official responsibilities of building the emperor's personal library in the Pantheon in Rome. Phlegon, a first century secular Greek historian, wrote a historical work called the Olympiads, which records that in the time of Tiberius Caesar and the fourth year of the 202nd Olympiad, that's 33 AD, there was a great eclipse of the sun that it became night in the sixth hour of the day, viewing it from the Greeks, that's noon, so that the stars even appeared in the heavens. There was an earthquake in Bithynia, and many other things were overturned in Nicaea. Cornelius Tacitus, a Roman historian writing in 70 AD, stated that Jesus had been crucified by Pontius Pilate. He gives us that detail, but then also said that Rome, Rome was in darkness for three hours, during the reign of Tiberius Caesar, sometime in 33 AD. Johannes de Scorbosco, I know you all know who that is, 12th century Italian astronomer, who was most known for his writings theorizing that the earth was not flat but round, and also establishing the Gregorian calendar from the Juliana calendar, he wrote in his book, The Sphere of the World, that the eclipse was not natural. There was no way for it to be natural, but rather was miraculous. 
and contrary to nature. My point, you have three theories, three concepts concerning this darkness. Literary invention, a natural phenomenon, or supernatural work of God. And if you've been reading through the Bible and you get to the Gospel of Mark, I'm going to go with the third one. Like you've already gotten to this point where you realize that God can do things that are supernatural, which I really don't like that phrase supernatural when it comes to God, because if God supersedes the natural, then what he does is only natural. So what we might think to be supernatural is only another day for God. My point, there's three hours of darkness. This is the experience of people around the cross. This is the experience of people in Rome and Alexandria. This is the experience of other cultures on other continents. During these three hours, the lights on planet Earth go out. Now imagine what it must have been like for the mockers standing around the cross. Imagine the experience of those who were busy going about their business across the Kidron there in Jerusalem when darkness covered the whole land for three hours. According to Amos, this was not just that it was dark, but that there was something tormenting about the darkness. Now, for the religious leaders, the symbolism should have been inescapable. In Exodus chapter 10, verse 22, we're told that so Moses, during the plagues of Egypt, stretched out his hand towards heaven. And we're told that there was a thick darkness in all of the land of Egypt for three days. And in many ways, this partial darkening of Egypt is a foreshadowing event of the full darkening that would take place at the cross. What took place in Egypt lasted three days, what took place here at the cross lasted three hours. What took place in Egypt was partial. What took place here was complete. But roll with me for a moment. The ninth plague produced what? A darkness that covered Egypt for three days. Coming out of the darkness, what took place? The Passover lamb was slain. Before what? The 10th plague, which was the angel of death that was unleashed to kill all of the firstborn sons of Egypt. Of which a direct consequence was that the people of God who had been held in bondage were finally freed. Jesus is on the cross, the ultimate Passover lamb, slain for whom? For the sins of the world. The ninth plague, there was darkness. We see darkness before the Passover lamb was accepted. And what would take place? The only begotten, the firstborn son would die. So that what? So that the people of God might be freed. They should have seen the symbolism. Now, there is a third consideration based upon this darkness. And that is the spiritual experience of Jesus during these three hours. We understand what he's going through physically. We understand what everyone else around the cross is going through, but I want to consider for a moment the spiritual experience of Jesus as he's hanging on this tree. It is not an accident that Webster defines darkness two ways. First, as being devoid of light. We got that one. But also that darkness can be defined as arising from or showing evil traits or desires. 
that darkness can be synonymous with evil, with wickedness. Metaphorically, when the Bible mentions darkness, yes, it can mean a literal darkness, but it can also refer to both the human condition of sinfulness, ungodliness, and immorality, as well as the wrath of God being poured out as a consequence of this sin, ungodliness, and immorality. So this darkness that encompassed the earth, yes, it's a literal darkness, a darkness that people are experiencing, are are within. But could it also be symbolic in so many ways of a spiritual experience that's taking place on the cross that the gospel writers knew but just could only define with this one word? I think we're given a bit more information from Jesus himself in Psalms chapter 22. I think Psalms 22 gives for us, it provides for us this messianic psalm, more insight into what Jesus is experiencing during these three hours of darkness. Verse six of Psalms 22, I'll read it for you. Jesus says from the cross, but I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head, saying he trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue himself. Let him deliver himself, since he delights in him. But you are he who took me out of the womb. You made me trust while on my mother's breast. I was cast upon you from birth. From my mother's womb, you have been my God. So be not far from me, for trouble is near. For there is none to help. And then then note, Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. Now, we're not going to spend too much time on this, but the bulls of Bashan can be possibly a reference to fallen demonic angelic beings. That during this this time, as Jesus is describing, that he's literally being oppressed and attacked by demonic supernatural elements around him. That these bulls, Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They gap at me with their mouths. Like raging and roaring lions, I am poured out like water. And all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. Describing what? The pain of his heart as he's trying to breathe. It's melted within me. My strength is dried up like a pot sheared. And my tongue clings to my jaw. You have brought me to the dust of death for dogs has surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced 700 years before the actual crucifixion, David writing prophetically, describing the crucifixion, which is not even invented yet, says, they pierced my hands and my feet and I can count all my bones and they look and stare at me and they divide my garments among them and my clothing they cast lots. I'm convinced that during these three hours of darkness, Jesus is experiencing the full effects of human sin. And think of what those effects are. First, there's the temptation that takes place. The effects of the world unseen around us that's occurring around Jesus 
And then there's the conviction that comes with sin, of which Jesus has never experienced before, conviction of sin. Nor has Jesus ever experienced the dirtiness that comes with the act itself, that residue that we want to wash off but we can't, that sickening feeling of not just one man's sin, not just your sin, but all sin. Imagine what the experience was like for Jesus who had known no sin but now is being made sin. The guilt, the dirtiness, the temptation, the conviction as he's bearing upon himself the sin of all humanity. You're there at the cross. Try to get yourself there. It's darkness. There's something mystical and spiritual and supernatural and radical happening. There's an earthquake. There's darkness. You're freaked out. And from the darkness, you hear from Jesus on the cross this fourth statement because he cries out with a loud voice, And he says, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? On your own, if you read all of Psalms 22, you will find that the psalm opens with the words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now this phrase, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, it's Aramaic which was Jesus' natural language. He knew Hebrew. He more than likely knew Greek, the the, the common language of, of most in the day. But for that region, he would also know Aramaic. And in context to the language, this phrase is an intense cry of terror. It's to cry out in horror. As all of these things are happening around Jesus as he's on the cross, his cadence, the tone, this is not some like soft statement in Old English. This is a cry of horror, of terror. And so we must consider what made Jesus so horrified. Like what horrified him? Was it the bulls of Bashan? Maybe these angelic, demonic beings afflicting him? I don't think so. Was it the the coming death that was on the horizon? I, I don't think death is what horrified Jesus. Was it the pain he's experiencing? He's already been experiencing it for hours. So I don't think it's the pain. Was it the rejection that was so horrifying, terrorizing him? Once again, I don't think you can make the case. So, so what in the moment was terrifying Jesus. Consider the words. My God, my God, why? Just pause right there. We often examine this phrase in its entirety. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And And we focus on the forsaken me part, which is significant. But consider the why. My God, my God, why? You see, in the moment, Jesus has become sin. And for the first time, he's experiencing what? The most basic fundamental consequence of sin. And that is separation from God. Isn't it interesting that in the middle of this painful, suffering, torment, horror, 
in the midst of Jesus' darkest moment as a man, that he cries out to God with a question. A question that I think echoes the experience of most of humanity in the midst of our own suffering and torment. Why? My God, my God, why? Have you ever prayed that same prayer? In the midst of your storm, have you ever cried out to God, why? Why are you doing this? Why are you allowing this? Understand the question is not wrong. I think it's a natural human reaction. We see it in Jesus. My God, my God, why? You see, what terrified Jesus is that he had been cut off from knowing the will of God. He didn't have an answer. He had been separated from God. He had been cut off from fellowship. A fellowship he was so accustomed to having. You see, Jesus was so used to being in touch with the Father that what terrorized him was being separated. What would terrorize, what horrified Jesus more than anything else. It wasn't death, it wasn't rejection, it wasn't pain. It was not knowing. It was being out of touch, not being connected. Let me ask you, what terrorizes you? Sadly, we have grown so accustomed to being out of touch with our Heavenly Father that the same horrifying effect of sin that Jesus feared the most, separation from His Father, doesn't often have the same effect on us, does it? What freaked Jesus out more than anything was being out of touch with God. Does the same thing terrorize you? Now, one of the great theological mysteries of this passage is how was Jesus separated from the Father? Like, wait a second. Like, how could the triune Godhead in this moment splinter and the universe actually remain intact? And considering this very concept, after we're told an extended amount of time sitting in solitude, hours in solitude, the great reformer Martin Luther, considering this concept, he simply shook his head and he says, God forsaken by God? Who can understand this? Though Jesus positionally remained God, for that had always been his true nature, it is also an inescapable reality that in this one moment, he found himself practically separated from God as a human being found guilty of sin. Now some who stood by, verse 35, when they heard Jesus say, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, they said, look, he's calling for Elijah. Then someone ran and filled a sponge full of sour wine and they put it on a reed and they offered it to him to drink. And they said, leave him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come and take him down. Now, when Jesus cried out from the darkness, these two words, Eloi, Eloi, Mark indicates that those standing there mistook Eloi, Eloi for Elijah, Elijah. And you can understand 
why this might have been a, a problem. You also factor the reality that according to Psalms 22, Jesus during the experience had said what? He had said, my tongue clings to my jaw which could contribute to the idea that when Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, that his tongue clings to his jaw, that he's having a hard time getting the words out, that what he's saying is muffled. Eloi, Eloi, like he's trying to get it out. And so they're, they're not able to hear exactly what he's saying. Now, John 19, verse 28, includes for us the fifth statement of Jesus that occurs between verse 35 and 36. We're told that after this, Jesus knowing that all things were accomplished, that scripture might be fulfilled, he said, so after Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, he said, I thirst. Which indicates why they had gone to get him something to drink. As the darkness gives way to light, John tells us that Jesus, knowing that all things were accomplished, cried out from the cross. He declared, I thirst. Aside from the fact, the reality, that Jesus wanted something to drink, which is why he says, I thirst, this statement, I thirst, consider the spiritual implications of those two words coming from the mouth of Christ. For I believe they continue to foster the idea that Jesus was not just speaking of a literal physical thirst. I thirst. I have two statements I need to get out. I need my tongue to get loosened for a moment so all the world can hear. But spiritually, for the first time, Jesus also experienced what humanity experienced. And that is a thirst of the soul a thirst we desire to be quenched. Please note that never before have we ever read that Jesus was thirsty. Now, that's not to say he didn't drink water or wine or whatnot. But still, the significance of the moment. Verse 37, and Jesus cried out with a loud voice and he breathed his last and the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. I thirst. They give him something to drink. And then with one last surge of strength, with energy, everything that he can muster for one final time, he presses his feet against the nail. He straightens his legs. He takes a deeper breath and he cries out before breathing his last. And once again, John they, and Luke provide what Jesus cried out. The sixth statement from the cross, John 19, verse 30, we're told that when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And then John says he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. But Luke then gives us the seventh statement. In chapter 23, verse 46, following it is finished, Jesus then says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. 
No three words have ever been spoken that have contained a deeper significance than the words, it is finished. Now, you should note that these three words were a common phrase in the first century. The phrase itself meant to bring to a close. In regards to economic transactions, the phrase meant to be paid in full. In regards to legal affairs, when a prisoner had fulfilled his sentence and was to be released, he would be notified by uh, one of the, the, the centurions working his way through the prison and nailing onto uh, his, his cell door the words, it is finished, meaning his debt had been completed. Note the phrase itself was in the perfect tense. The three words, it is finished, literally means it is finished. It has been finished. It will always be finished. It's a phrase of permanence, which is why any legalists who try to add to this phrase make a mockery of the cross. Now, in order to fully grasp the significance of the three words, it is finished. A phrase that no but or 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 and should ever be added to, you must first define what it actually is. Because it is finished. So, what is it? You see, the work that Jesus finished on the cross was the work of redemption. The work that Jesus did on the cross, it satisfied the price for sin so that we might be forgiven. But then you have to consider how it is finished. Okay, it is redemption. But now how is redemption finished? I want you to consider the question. It's a basic question. A question most of us get wrong. Who killed Jesus? Like really, who killed him? You know, early Christians blamed the Romans. According to the Apostles' Creed, they blamed Pontius Pilate. Later Christians ended up blaming the Jews. It was justification for years of anti-Semitism. There are those today who will blame Satan. Satan, Satan, Satan. Satan killed Jesus. While other evangelicals today will say that it's you, you and I, we killed Jesus. We're guilty of the crime. But understand all of these answers are wrong. Theologically, they all err. For who killed Jesus? The answer might shock you. God killed Jesus. Now, to understand this concept, please realize a few things about God. He's presented to us as being holy and just. Therefore, he must righteously judge and punish sin. I mean, Jesus, God... It made it clear, what? Right from the beginning, that the wages of sin was what? Was death. And the execution of this divine judgment for sin is referred to in Scripture as the wrath of God. So God is holy and just, and thus he must judge and execute judgment on sin. But then we also know what about God? That he's also known by his love. His love for us and his desire for reconciliation with sinners. So the great question of Scripture, the big question of Scripture, is how can God save the sinner yet still righteously judge the sin? The answer is that God can pour out his wrath on a substitute sacrifice. 
I mean, this was with the whole law, all of the Old Testament. The sacrifices of lambs, it was symbolic of a greater sacrifice to come. They were temporary sacrifice to give a picture of a permanent sacrifice, a permanent substitutionary sacrifice. The biblical requirements, they're just three. <laughs> the sacrifice had to be human. Only a human can be an adequate sacrifice. Secondly, the sacrifice had to be sinless. The substitute can't be equally guilty or the sacrifice would be paying for his own sin. Thirdly, the sacrifice must be willing. I mean, a forced participant would nullify the effects. And scripture tells us that Jesus fulfills all three requirements. He's human and he was sinless and he was willing. He willingly chose to be our substitute sacrifice that in order to both demonstrate his hatred of sin and his love for sinners, the Son of God sacrificially took upon himself the wrath of God by dying on the cross. Philippians 2 verse 8 says, And being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. Romans 5 verse 9, Much more than having now been justified by what? By his blood. We shall be saved from what? from the wrath through him. Please understand this. If you don't understand this, you miss the whole significance of the moment. But the horrors that Jesus experienced, the scourging, the humiliation, the crucifixion, the horrors that Jesus went through that day encompassed the full wrath of God towards sin. Yes, the Jewish leaders instigated his death. Pontius Pilate sanctioned the execution. The legionnaires carried out the dastardly deed. Undoubtedly, Satan gloated over Jesus' pain and torment, but never forget, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. What makes this section of scripture, the section we've been examining over the last couple weeks, so holy is that the wrath of God poured out on Jesus, the wrath we've looked at, was the wrath of God meant for you and for me. God's wrath had you in its sight. It just so happens that Jesus stood in your place. The punches Jesus took from the temple guards were meant for your face. The lashes Jesus endured from the flagrum were meant for your back. The cross that Jesus was laid upon had your name written on it. The nails which pierced his flesh had been sized for your hands and feet, and yet Jesus willingly took it all upon himself. Why? For God so loved you. And Mark tells us the immediate effects of the work of Jesus on the cross. He says immediately what happened the veil and the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. According to Josephus, the veil was 80 feet tall and it was woven 10 inches thick. Imagine the scene. This darkness is lifted. It's 3 p.m. It's time for the evening sacrifices. Jesus is crying out, it is finished. The temple is filled with activity. Priests busy about their duties. I figure the first indication that something was happening was the tear, the noise of the tear of such a gigantic curtain, this piece of fabric. And then they note that the veil is being torn, not from the bottom, but from the top, signifying something supernatural was occurring. 
as the tear continues, it begins to reveal a small room that it was designed to conceal, the Holy of Holies, the throne room of God. And as it begins to reveal this room, please get in mind, no one is stuck as a statue. People are running for their lives. The priests, as Jesus cries out, it is finished, as he breathes his last, immediately the focus shifts from the Mount of Olives to priests running for their lives out of the temple. See, understand that the purpose of the veil, we get this wrong over and over and over again. Almost every commentator I read got it wrong. The veil that divided the temple into two sections did not exist to protect God from man. It wasn't to protect God from man. Like God couldn't get around your ickiness. Like somehow our sin goo was like, God just couldn't wash it off. So he says, we need this curtain to keep you away from me. It wasn't about man. You see, the veil was designed to protect man, sinful man, from God. The veil was designed to distance and to shield sinful humanity from God's righteous holiness. Because what happened on the other side of that veil was deadly. Once a year, the high priest would be allowed to go in. And if he hadn't atoned for sin, if he had any sin, he was struck dead on the spot. That's why they had tassels around the bottom of his robe. Because if the jingling stopped, they pulled him out. Going into the presence of God was serious business. If you had some hidden sin, boom, you were struck dead. You see, the veil being rent in two didn't mean that man could now approach God because the sin barrier that separated him had been removed. Instead, man could now approach God because God's wrath towards sin had been satisfied in Jesus. <laughs> but please understand, a sinner approaching a righteous God is still risky business. If you've accepted that God's wrath towards you was satisfied in the sacrificial work of Jesus on the cross, then as we're told in Hebrews 4.16, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we might obtain mercy and find grace and help in our time of need. However, if you reject Jesus' atoning sacrifice on the cross and choose instead to approach a righteous, holy God on your own merit, then according to Scripture... When you approach that God, you will experience the righteous wrath and judgment of God. For the wages of your sin have not been paid, have not been satisfied. No, can you say it is finished. Your payment is just beginning. Because Jesus declared it is finished and the veil of separation was torn, humanity was now provided for the first time ever a new way they could approach God. This morning, you can still stand and the crosshair of the wrath of a righteous God on your own, or you can now kneel at the cross of Jesus and accept the grace and atonement of a righteous Savior who bore God's wrath for you. John 3, verse 36 makes it clear that whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life. Why? For God's wrath remains on him. 
1829, Pennsylvania native George Wilson was convicted of mail robbery and murder. He was found guilty. He was sentenced to death. But right before his death, George Wilson was pardoned by Andrew Jackson, President Jackson. But something interesting happened, something that had never, been ha never happened before in American history. Wilson refused the pardon, rejected it. He didn't want it. He wanted to die. Confusion reigned. Everyone couldn't figure out, okay, what do you do? And the, the case went to the Supreme Court. In United States versus Wilson, the chief Supreme Court justice, John Marshall, ruled, a pardon is a deed to the validity of, to the validity of which delivery is essential and delivery not complete without acceptance. It may then be rejected by the person to whom it has been rendered. And if it be rejected, we have no power in a court to force it upon him. Now, there's a lot of reasons that what Jesus did for you is more than a pardon. What Jesus did, it, it pales to what Jackson did. It says it would be like Jackson dying for George Wilson, not just writing on a piece of paper, but the, the, the principle of accepting something still remains. You can accept that God's wrath was poured out on Jesus for you, or you can say, no, thank you, and stand before God one day in the merit of your righteousness and say, bring it. And it will be brought. And sadly, it will never be finished. But what Jesus did, it is permanent and it is lasting and all it needs is to be activated like that other rebel on the cross by faith. And so, Father, with that, 